Well, I think this uh, story is maybe a little well-known, but I don't want to assume everyone knows it, but there is this uh, kind of, I don't know what you call it, a parable or something, that says there was a fellow um, who was living in a house, and then a big flood came, and so he climbs up to the roof of his house to avoid drowning, and he's praying to God for help, and soon a man with a rowboat comes up alongside his house and shouts, Jump in, I can save you! And then the guy on top of the house shouts back, No thank you! I'm praying, and God's going to save me. And so the guy with the rowboat continues on. And then a motorboat comes by, and the guy in the motorboat shouts, Jump in, I'll, I'll save you. And the man again says, No thanks, I'm praying to God, and he's going to save me. I have faith. So the motorboat goes on, and then a helicopter came by, and a pilot shouted down to him, Grab onto the rope, we'll save you, you don't have to drown. And again he says, No thanks, I'm praying to God, he's going to save me. I have faith. And so the helicopter reluctantly flies away, and then soon the water rises above the rooftop, and the man drowns, and then he goes uh, and meets God upon his death, and when he finally gets his chance to discuss this whole situation with God, he says, uh, I had faith in you, but you didn't save me, you let me drown, I don't understand why. To this God replied, I sent you a rowboat and a motorboat and a helicopter, what more did you expect? So is this a story that people, most people have heard, or have ever heard? Okay, just a few, a few head nods. Um, But today, as we continue this series in Ruth called uh, Redeeming Love, in chapter 1, we remember that we were introduced to Elimelech and his family. He has a wife named Naomi, he has two sons, Matlon and Kilion, and then there's a famine in the land of Israel, so they say, uh, he decides, we need to try to survive this, so let's go uh, to the land of Moab and see if we can make a living out there, like though we don't starve. So they all move over there, but shortly after they move there, Elimelech dies. And so, you know, it was kind of like, once upon a story, there was a man named Elimelech, you know, and then two seconds later, and he died. You know, so it's like, oh, who's this story about now? And then, uh, after, over a course of ten years, um, both Montalone and Kilion take Moabite wives. They marry these two women, and so Naomi now has daughter-in-laws. But then eventually, Montalone and Kilion die over a ten-year period, and they've had no kids. It seems that the two Moabite women, they uh, marry Orpah and Ruth, weren't able to get pregnant. And so... At the end of 10 years, Naomi is now, my husband's dead, my two sons are dead, and all I have are my two daughters-in-law left, I have no grandchildren. Uh, and so they decide, okay, uh, I'm going to return back to my hometown of Bethlehem. And as she's going back, Ruth and Orpah are following her, and she says to them, maybe at the edge of Moab, no, don't come with me, this is a bad idea. Uh, you can tell that things aren't going well for me in my life. You don't really want to hitch yourself to my wagon. And so you should go back. Go back to the house of your mother so you can marry other men and you can you know, get on with your life. And Orpah takes her, uh, takes this logic and says, okay, I'll do that. But Ruth says, no, I will not go away from you. I'll hold on to you. I'm going to stick with you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to go all the way. And then Naomi's like, okay, oh, sure. When they arrive in Bethlehem, everyone's saying, is this Naomi? You know, Ten years later, she returns, no husband, no sons but this one foreign uh, woman who's her daughter-in-law, and she just says, don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. Call me uh, Mara. That means bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. He's shown that he's against me. He's testified against me. I left full, but have come back empty. And so Ruth chapter 1 is about Naomi's tragic suffering. And in chapter 2, we'll see uh, that God is not against Naomi. He has not stopped loving her. And he, but he's acted in her life, and she's writing a better. God is writing a better story for Naomi than she would want written for herself. And so I just want you to think 
I just said God is active and present in Naomi's life. And so as you think about this past week, or past month, past year, when are times when you felt God is active and present in my life? Where you felt like that was God. You know, that God felt very real to me in that. Or God felt very present to me. And I don't, I'm not asking you to share it out loud, but where have you experienced that? When was the last time you experienced it? Was it yesterday, a couple hours ago, a week ago, a year ago, where you felt like, God, you were really with me in that time. Like you were really active doing something special there. Where have you seen this loving guidance and care? And if you're like me, you might have trouble answering that question. If you're like me, you tend to only see uh, the parts where God is in your week as the times that are kind of designated as God time. This is God time. You know, hour and a half on a Sunday morning, God time. Praying, that's God time. Reading Bible, that's God time. And if you add those up, you know, going to a worship service, reading your Bible, praying about, you know, I don't know how much you guys do that, but let's just say four hours is the amount of time you spend in a worship gathering and then praying and reading your Bible throughout the week. And so that, if there's 168 hours in the week, four hours are ones that we consider God time, or 2% of our week is you know, God time. That's when God, I was really focused. I was praying. I was reading my Bible, worship gathering. God spoke to me. He was present. I felt him there. And that can be, tend to be how we feel. Like there's kind of like, if you look at our weekly schedule, it's like, oh, this is blocked off a time when I experienced God. Oh, this is another time blocked off where I experienced God. And everything in between is kind of like non-God time. And this second chapter of Ruth uh, shows us how God is active and present in Naomi's life and in Ruth's life in the ordinary and everyday things that they're going through. And that means it also shows us how God is active and present in our lives, in the ordinary, in the everyday things that we're experiencing, and everything, everyday things we're doing. This chapter has three scenes, and so the first scene kind of sets things up. And I kind of see this as Ruth's plan. This is Ruth's plan is looking for favor. So this is verses 1 through 3. And the last verse of chapter 1, we read that because it says, And they, referring to Naomi and Ruth, came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And to Naomi, she's like, life is bitter. I kind of have no hope. But this, this little uh, telling us that they came at the end of the barley harvest is giving us this little ray of hope. It's like saying, okay, just wait, Naomi, you're bitter, but like, let's see how it's going to play out. They, came, they just so happened to come at the end, or at the beginning of the barley harvest. Because we saw that the land of Israel was in famine. But then Naomi hears God has come and given his people food. And they come right at the time when that food is going to be available. You know, it's not like, like woo, our crops are growing. You don't have food immediately. You have to wait till it's time to be harvested. And so they come right when it's time for that stuff to be harvested. And uh, we see that this is going to be possible that now they can have some food. Because look, Israel has food. It's getting harvested now. And barley was the first crop to be harvested, followed by wheat. And each year, uh, the barley would be ready in like April or May, um, according to their our calendar. That's not the calendar they used. Uh, but another glimmer of hope is given in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And when you're reading through the Old Testament, this is just like a little thing to take note of. Anytime you see the word now starting a sentence, at least in the ESV translation, again, a test for other, other translations do it, um, that's giving you kind of almost like side information. It's like, okay, we're trotting along in the story, and it's like, 
Now let me tell you something special. And that's kind of what is going on. Now, she, he's, the narrator stops. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. You know, so it's kind of like giving you this side information. Like this is going to be something critical. Now, if you've noticed, the Bible is often very um, not uh, having a large amount of detail. It's so when it gives little details with that word. Now, let me, you need to pay attention to this. That's something that we should uh, keep in mind. And the existence of this worthy man who's in the clan of Naomi's husband is key. But here's the question. Yes, God provided food for his people, but how does this help Ruth and Naomi? They didn't plant crops. They're just coming back now. I mean, Naomi, I would assume that her, she, they just kind of left their house and their land. They come back and they got this 10 years later. It was anything left of a house. Probably weeds growing up in their, in their, in their uh, fields. You know, they don't have anything to get. And so their issue is they don't have any food. They don't have any money to buy food. And in that culture, uh, women were very dependent on men for protection and provision. And neither Naomi nor Ruth, they don't have husbands, they don't have sons. They don't have any men in their lives and so as widows, they're very vulnerable. But God gave Israel some laws that were meant to take care of people in this exact situation. And it, there's a law that's uh, stated three different times, uh, and one of them is in Leviticus 19, which is actually the chapter where we get the, the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's where that command comes from. So Leviticus 19, uh, verses 9 through 10 say, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather, uh, gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. And when it's restated in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, it includes sojourners, fatherless, and the widow, as those are supposed to benefit from this practice. In some ways, you can think of this as like a welfare system, except it's not the government running it. It's the people who own the fields. And he's saying, you don't, don't harvest everything in your field. Leave kind of the edges or leave the corners. And the people that are sojourners, so they don't have any land there, they're just kind of passing through, or they've gotten you know, like refugees kind of or something like that, where it's like, okay, they don't, how are we going to supply or feed ourselves? Like, oh, we can go, we're allowed to go glean what's left over in the fields. And same thing with the fatherless or orphans. Same thing with widows and people who lacked these things could go into the fields, into the vineyards, and pick at the harvest time. And so it shouldn't be picked clean. It should be intentionally left for people that need it. And the book of Ruth shows us this law in action. Actually, I'm not, don't quote me on this. I think it might be uh, one of the only narratives that actually shows this law in action in the Old Testament. It might be the only one. And so Ruth sets out to take advantage of this law. She tells Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi's only response is, Okay, go, my daughter. And verse 3 summarizes the result of Ruth's going out. It says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And just imagine uh, a little... Between verses 3 and verses 4, the, the screen kind of fades to black. I don't know if you watch TV shows where it's like, it shows you kind of three-quarters. The opening scene is actually three-quarters through the um, episode. It's like somebody's, you know, I don't know, trapped or something. It's like, how did they get in this situation? And then it fades to black six hours earlier or 12 hours earlier. And then you go back and now they show, how did they actually end up in this situation? Verse 3 is kind of saying, like, that's where Ruth ends and then fades to black and then it says twelve, you know, six hours earlier. And now verse 4 is going to explain how it happens. And so this is, 
that's our second scene. Uh, well, first one was Ruth's plan. Second is Boaz's provision. Ruth goes out to find, to look for favor, and in Boaz she finds it. So verses 4 through 17 uh, give us this. And it, kind of, it all tells us kind of from Boaz's perspective to start off. And so Boaz, he's coming. Uh, she, Ruth just happened to go to his field, you know, just so happened. You know, we'll come back to that. Uh, then Boaz just so happens to show up at this field while Ruth is there. And he gives his reapers a godly greeting. He says, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And during a time of spiritual and moral decline in Israel, Boaz is shining out as this man of God who is uh, just showing, like, this is what it looks like to live under God's rule. And then Boaz notices there's someone in the field. He's asked, who, who does this young woman belong to? Like, who's, who is she? And he's not saying, like, she's a slave or something, but she, he's asking, whose daughter or, or wife or uh, mother is this? I'm oh, no, sorry, daughter or sister or wife is this? And so the foreman reports, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now this, these verses, verse 7, there's a number of things here that are unclear in the original language. And so if you look at different translations, they might come out with it differently. I'm going to give you my take on it, which is slightly different from what we're reading in the ESV, but we need to pause and learn a few terms. Um, reapers uh, were typically men in charge of reaping the field. Look, I brought, a, I brought a prop. Check it out. So this isn't barley, but you could imagine it being barley because it's kind of close to it. So you've got your, you've got your stalks of barley. Reapers coming through with like a sickle or something, and they would cut it off, and then as they're cutting it off, they're grouping it in their hand into what they called sheaves. And then eventually your hand would get full and you drop it down. And then what, who would, then there'd be a group of women that were called uh, the gatherers. And so they're coming and they're taking these sheaves, you know, picking them up and then making them into a big bundle. And then they would maybe tie a rope around them. And then they might stand it up because after you get a whole bunch of them, you can stand it up so it might dry out. Or they might take it and carry it over to what's called the threshing floor, um, and for to be threshed means there's like these little heads in here, and what they want, would do is they like maybe lay them all out on the ground, and then you could whack them with a bunch of sticks so that the little barley kernels would come off of the stalk because you don't want this stalk, um, or they might have a sled that they're carrying behind uh, like an animal, so it's kind of going over a whole bunch of them and knocking all the little barley uh, grains out of there, and then it would have to be winnowed, which was the process of separating the little grain pieces from the chaff, which is, you know, all the straw stuff and anything else that's on there. So they would take a little, uh, like a pitchfork or something like it, and they'd throw it up in the air, and the seeds, or the grain would fall to the ground, and the wind would blow the other, uh, the other parts of it away, all the chaff, separating the wheat or the grain from the chaff. And so gleaning, gleaning is gathering the leftover grain from the field. And that could be either the stalks that the reapers left up. It's like, okay, you're not supposed to reap all the way to the edge of your field, right? Oh, so there's this little corner. And now gleaning is coming in. The harvesters have already gone through. And gleaning is coming and getting those leftovers. Or getting, you know, maybe the, the women who are gathering came through and they missed some. And so the gleaners could come and they could pick up stuff off the ground. And this is what the poor, the sojourners, the fatherless, and widows were allowed to do after the reapers and the gatherers went through. 
And as I said, it's a bit unclear uh, what Ruth asked to do. What, it, what we know is true is that she's arrived to glean while the reapers and the gatherers are still at work. Normally, they wouldn't, you wouldn't come in to glean until they're done. The harvesters need to finish, and then what's left over is what you get to glean. But she comes and asks, can I come and glean among, you know, among the sheaves, among these, these bunches that the reapers are grabbing up? So she's wanting to come in early, and she has no food, she has no money. She's saying, you're still harvesting. I want to come in and glean now. I don't want to wait till the harvest is over. I could be dead by then. And this shows just how desperate she and Naomi's situation is. They can't wait until the end of the harvest. They need it now. And so it seems that what happens is Ruth comes and asks the foreman, can I come glean among uh, the, the uh, sheaves that the reapers have left behind? And the foreman either says no, like, yeah, you have to wait, you can't do that. Or he says, I can't give you that permission. Like, you're going to have to wait till the owner to come. And so he perhaps doesn't have authority to grant the request. And either way, she just decides, um, from my perspective, I'm just going to wait till the owner shows up. Um, and she's, so he says she's continued, which I think means she's just remained standing there all day waiting for Boaz to show up for six hours or however long it was. And so Boaz, he doesn't even respond to the foreman explains this. This is what she has to do. She wants to glean now among the sheaves that the reapers are dropping. And so he responds to her. Boaz says, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field. Or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So Boaz grants Ruth permission for what she's asked for. She doesn't have to wait till the reapers and the gatherers are done harvesting. He says, you can do it now. And I, I think I might have mentioned that the gatherers were typically women. So the reapers are typically men. The people gathering what the reapers cut down were typically women. And he says, you can work right with my young women. Like, they're gathering now. And the only thing is that if she's not gathering for Boaz. She's gathering for herself. You can work among my employees. And it's not going to benefit me at all. You can just take it home, whatever you get. And so he lets her come in uh, right with his workers. And he charges his workers, don't harass her in any way. And he kind of shows around the, around the work site. You, you know, you can drink from the water cooler. Uh, he, you're giving, he's giving her all kinds of privileges. And then what he's giving her is both provision and protection. I'm going to provide food for you. I've told people not to touch you. And this is a dark time in Israel. She's a widow. She's a woman. She's vulnerable. You just don't really know what's going to, um, what people might try to take advantage of her. And then she falls on her face, bowing to the ground, says to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you would take such notice of me since I'm a foreigner? And Ruth set out looking for favor, we saw in verse 2. And now she's found it, and she's just astounded at it. She feels totally undeserving. And she's just saying, why do I get this? And the, the chapter leading up to this has emphasized Ruth's foreignness. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. And that's who she is to these people. And Boaz says to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz has been told of Ruth's commitment to Naomi. She left her own people she, to come with Naomi to the land of Israel. And now he says, you've come under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel, for refuge. 
And Ruth responds, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz invites her, you know, come sit among the reapers, you can eat here. And so she gets to eat what they're having for lunchtime, you know, it's a cafeteria or whatever, food, I don't know how, that, how it works, but somehow it's like, yeah, you can fit in on this. She eats till she's full, and she's allowed to even take leftovers back for Naomi. And he instructs his workers again, you know, don't, don't tell her uh, that she can't glean. And even, I want you to pull pieces out and leave them for her, like intentionally, no, you know, because it could be like, well, she's gleaning, so we're going to get everything, you know, really get you these, like, leave stuff for her. And so Ruth is gleaning, but she isn't really getting the leftovers of the harvest. She's working right there among the gatherers, getting the best access to the crop. And then verse 17 summarizes that she gleaned until evening, and then beat out what she had gleaned, removing the heads of grain from the stalks. And she took home an ephah of barley, which would have been about a week's worth of food for both her and Naomi. So this isn't just like, I gleaned for today, and now I get to eat for today. It's like, she has a week's worth. And the final scene is Ruth reports to Naomi, verses 17 to 22. And, and Ruth brings her gleanings home and the leftovers, and Naomi's a bit astounded. You know, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Who in the world let you do this? This is... You know, very bold and out, you know, going beyond the law. She says, blesses the man who took notice of you. And Naomi is wondering, who let her glean this early? Ruth reports, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And so Naomi bursts out with praise. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In verse 1, we already know Boaz is a key person in Naomi's family, that she is related to uh, her husband, Elimelech. But Ruth has no idea. And so Naomi is informing Ruth, and she, just, and she says, you know, this, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And then Ruth says, he didn't only allow me to glean, but he allowed me to eat and bring leftovers. And he says, I get to go through the, out the whole harvest season. I get to keep doing this uh, until the end. It's not like he just said, this is a one-time deal through the whole harvest season. And he, Naomi responds, it is good, my daughter, that you go with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Because remember, this is a dark time in Israel, a time of moral and spiritual decline. So she's saying, you found a guy who's showing you favor and he's solid, he's in our family, just stay there that everything is going to go well with you. And so she sticks with him, uh, not only through the barley harvest, but through the wheat harvest the whole time. And there's two key statements in this chapter that are related to one another. One of them is made by Naomi right here in verse 20. She says to Ruth, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And the word kindness, I mean, it's, very, it's a very powerful word in Hebrew that's hard to capture uh, with one word or phrase. If you're here, if you remember our Micah series, we talked about it in that uh, series. But it's the word chesed. It's kind of a clearing of your throat is the first sound. Chesed. And it's often translated as steadfast love, um, loving kindness. Um, but other ways to think of it are you know, unfailing love or loyal love. But the, even that doesn't quite capture it. It's a, it means compassionate, loyal love expressed to someone in dire need with whom you're in a relationship. And so God's in covenant relationship with Israel. And so when he shows chesed, he's showing compassion and loyal love in a time of their dire, desperate need. And in Ruth 1, 8, chapter 1, verse 8, Naomi prayed that God would deal kindly with her daughters-in-law, that he, God would uh, show them hesed, because they've shown hesed to her dead husband and their dead husbands, and to her, now if she prays God, would he show it to you? But whose kindness is she talking about? 
in this. She says, uh, his kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And so is she talking about Boaz's or God's loving kindness? Boaz's or God's chesed? And the answer is both. Boaz's kindness toward Ruth and Naomi is an expression of God's kindness toward Ruth and Naomi. And this verse is kind of almost in the middle of the book and it's the turning point of this whole chapter because you're wondering, how are these two women going to survive? And this verse is the, the turning point where she's saying, God has not failed to show us this compassionate, kind love. So that's the first statement. The other statement was made by Boaz in verses 11 to 12. He tells Ruth that you've come under the wings of the God of Israel to take refuge as I said at the beginning of this service, it's one of my favorite images in the Bible of God, of God gathering us under his wings like a mother bird. And I just, you know, take some time on your own, just imagine what does that uh, feel, what would it be like to be under a bird's wings? Even whatever is going on outside of you, you know, getting pulled up under that you hear, if you be warm, you feel safe, probably hear the bird's heart beating. You might hear whatever craziness is going on outside of the wings, but it would be very muffled. And so this image of God pulling us in close in a way that the, the thing that we can most feel and hear is his warmth, his heartbeat, his holding us, and all the other things kind of get drowned out and go in the background because you're under his wings. And so Naomi uh, hints toward there being an even deeper refuge in kindness when she says that Boaz is one of their redeemers, because he's already said, Ruth, I've heard of your faith commitment to the God of Israel and to Naomi and to come here, and now look, you've come under the wings of the God of Israel for refuge. And so she experiences that through her faith. And, but now how is it actually uh, becoming concrete and practical in her life? Well, it's by Boaz providing for her and protecting her and so even in this dark time in Israel's history, there was godly people like Boaz who would reflect what the God of Israel is like. You've come under his protection, and now look, this is what his love looks like for you. But Naomi says, this man is one of our redeemers. This means that he's in a position to create even more, an even more permanent solution for Ruth and Naomi. I'm not going to go super deep into it because that's going to be covered in the next two chapters. Um, but... A redeemer in a family is someone who saves that family line from extinction. That the, the sons, the land that God gave them would be passed down through the, through the families by the male would inherit it. And so now there's no males left in Naomi's family. And so what's going to happen to their land? And so this is a way for God to keep that line from not going into distinct extinction and also to get all of them to keep their, their land. And that's going to be the focus of the next uh, couple chapters. Um, but what Boaz will eventually do is he has to marry either Naomi or Ruth in order to uh, redeem them from the situation. They don't have any men in their life, no one to inherit the land. And so Boaz will marry one of them in their desperate situation. And this is another bud of hope that doesn't come into full bloom until the next chapters. And the takeaway in this chapter is about how God is working in Naomi and Ruth's lives. Both Boaz and Naomi talk about how God is taking care of them and loving them. And who gets, God gets the credit. But if you think about it, where have we seen God in this story? It's not like God's shown up in a cloud or something. or not like God has you know, done something really crazy in this story. And just think back to that opening story with the guy who's experienced the flood and he's on top of his roof. 
Where did God show up in that story? He's in a dire situation. He needs to be rescued. He believes God is his only hope. And God expresses his love for this man by sending a rowboat, sending a motorboat, sending a helicopter. And God sent people as an expression of love for this man. And in this story, Boaz is a visible expression of God's love for both Ruth and for Naomi and being a refuge for them. And Boaz is just reflecting what God's like. And God, uh, God's loving care and loving guidance enters Naomi and Ruth's lives through a person. And we saw how he guided them in verse 3. said, Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And this is the author just kind of winking to us. You know, it just so happened. You know, it's like there's no coincidence, coincidences. I can't say that word. Coincidences in the world of the Bible. So God is leading them. And his invisible hand is seen in the events of their lives. And it's easy for us to miss God's activity and presence in our lives. A lot of times, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been laying in the bed at night and feeling like, God, I just don't know what to do here. Just be awesome if you just send an angel to show up and just kind of, you know, make this room glow and to tell me this is what you're supposed to do. And we might think, you know, about those powerful moments in the Bible when God appeared to his people in big and obvious ways. We may think about God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. We may think about God bringing all these plagues on the land of Egypt and then leading the people of Israel with a pillar of cloud and fire. You may think about when King Belshazzar of Babylon, uh, God gets his attention by writing on the wall. Or you may think about angels coming to Mary and Joseph to tell them God is going to bring a son who's going to be the Messiah through you. And we'd like God to show up in those big and loud and obvious ways. We'd like him to have this, God, just please just write it on a sign or write it in the sky. Just tell me where you are. What you want me to do? And the reality is that God sh- most of the time shows up in way more subtle and perhaps we could say natural ways that aren't kind of, I mean, the whole world is a, a supernatural creation of God and God is present everywhere, but it shows up in ways that seem more natural to our life. And actually, God making himself known in a big and loud way doesn't actually help people follow him all that much because the people of Israel, they saw all this. Moses, burning bush, brings them out of Egypt with plagues, pillar of fire and cloud to lead them, Mount Sinai, thunder, lightning, flashing. God speaks to them. They hear God's voice. Moses comes down with these stone tablets written by the finger of God. And what do they do? Like While Moses was up on the mountain, they made this golden calf to worship instead of God. And then they grumble and complain, like, it would be better in Egypt. Where is God? Is he even with us? What's going on here? And then all of them get punished because they lacked faith. They lacked obedience. They grumbled. They doubted God's power and ability. Even though God showed up in these big and loud ways. And even think of Judas, who, a requirement to be, is one of the twelve that Jesus chose, saw from Jesus' baptism all the way to his death. All these miracles, and he betrayed Jesus. And all the disciples abandoned Jesus when he was arrested. And so God showing up in big and loud ways with miracles and crazy things that get our attention doesn't guarantee faith or obedience. And we might think, you know, God would be more obvious in my life. If he'd be more big and flashy and loud, if he would just show up clearly, then it would be way easier for me to follow him. The history in the Bible shows us that this isn't the case. And the truth is that God is always active in presence in our lives, especially if we've trusted in Jesus because he's given us his Holy Spirit. Let's go back to the hours in a week. Consider there's 168 hours in a week. And we need 
we tend to see some of those hours as God time. Perhaps when we're in a church service or praying or doing a Bible study by ourselves or with people. And we think that the other 164 hours, you know, if we spend four hours doing those things, are kind of not God, non-God time. And if we want to have more of God in our life, we shouldn't think, I need to have more God time doing more God stuff. It's more about becoming attentive and receptive to God's presence and activity all the time. That all time is God time and all things happening are God stuff. And consider if you're listening you know, to the radio and one of your friends says, there's this really great station, I think you'd like it. And you say, oh, I've never heard of it before, I've never listened to it before. But that doesn't mean that that station doesn't exist. That doesn't mean that station wasn't broadcasting. It means you weren't tuned into it. I broke my barley. I mean, it just means you weren't tuned into it. That you were listening to some other station, you were paying some attention to something else, and you just hadn't tuned into this station, that was broadcasting all the time. You just need to tune our hearts with God to the correct frequency. And from her place of bitterness, Naomi is now starting to get tuned in to see that God really does love me. He's really faithful to me. And he's, she's seeing it through first Ruth's actions, which she seemed kind of blind to, but now it's starting to wake up to it as Boaz, Boaz is showing these things to her. And she, Ruth also is learning what Israel's God of love is really like through Boaz's actions. I mean, what was it like? Okay, I married this, this Israelite guy. He died. My brother-in-law died. You know, and like, it's, and I can't have kids. It's like, what? If, you know, but she's still committed to God, and now she's finding God's love in her life. And we see these two categories: loving care and loving guidance. And the key for us as disciples of Jesus is to learn to see God's loving care and guidance in our lives. And we have, we have two stories to look at when we think about this. We have first the gospel story, the whole. Um, Bible is telling us this is how God is present and active in all these people's lives and it continues on until today and so when we think about the gospel it's okay uh, God so loved us that he sent Jesus to redeem us out of our dire need and that's what the position Boaz is in that he can redeem these two women out of their dire need and the way he's going to do it is by marrying Ruth if you think about Ephesians chapter 5 where it talks about the church as the bride of Christ that Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us that we are in this dire situation um, in a dire need and Jesus comes and he takes us out of it by taking us as his bride he comes to rescue us from death just like Ruth and Naomi are being rescued from death and Ruth says why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner and we can say the same thing to God God why have I found favor in your eyes since I am blank since I am a sinner since I've lived as your enemy, since I don't love you with my whole heart, since I've wandered and strayed, and God still says, but my love is still unfailing, it's still steadfast to you, it's still loyal, I have compassion for your situation. And he gathers us under him for refuge like a mother bird with her chicks. And so that's the gospel story. We each have our own personal stories as well. We need to begin to see uh, these three things, how God has been present with us. When we look to the past, we see how God has been there. When we look at our present, we see how God is here. When we look to our future, we see God will be there. And it's kind of like if you think of yourself uh, sitting in a car. It's like when you look at the rearview mirror, God was there. When you look beside you, and here's the thing to think about, are you looking to your right at the passenger seat to see God? Or are you looking to the left to the driver's seat? And I would suggest that we're in the passenger seat. God's writing the story. He has a plan for us. And so we look in our rearview mirror and we see God was always there. We look 
to our left, God beside us, He is with us now. We look out the windshield, God's going to be there with us then as well. And the problem is that oftentimes we tend to filter God through our story rather than filtering our story through God. And let me explain that. When we filter God through our story, we look at what is happening in our life and then we make conclusions about God. We see the pain and the problems and we decide God must be against me or isn't around at all. But if we filter our story through God, then we're looking at God and making conclusions about our story. We know He's good. We know He's loving. We know He's with us. And so whatever is happening doesn't mean He isn't good, loving, or present. And so we can trust that He is active and present in our lives and we can begin to see how He is. And this is learning to live the the God-with-us life that Jesus was Emmanuel and then He says, I'm sending you out in the world and I'll be with you always at the end of the age. And these two things are testimonies of saying, this is the gospel story. This is what God has done in my life. It's kind of universal for everyone to trust in Jesus. And also, this is what personally what I've seen God do in my life, how he's active and present. And Ruth shows us the key to really seeing this uh, is her humility. Is that she says, I don't deserve this. Why have I found favor in your eyes? It's not like, you know, yeah, I really, I'm entitled to a lot. I left my own land. I left my people to come with Naomi. And now, hey, you need to provide for me. She's not like, I have rights. I'm entitled. Like, I deserve this. She's just feeling totally undeserving. Like, she doesn't earn it. She hasn't done anything. And that's why she sees it as favor, that what Boaz is doing for her is not, yeah, that's, that's what I'm owed. She's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Like, this is so gracious and kind of you. Like, you weren't required to do this, and you did it. Ruth is humble, which makes her grateful. And when she gets that favor, she feels comforted, it says. She's relieved. And when we look at God's love, God's love is a redeeming love. It's a love that comes to us in our most desperate need, in our most dire situations. It's a love that doesn't wait for us to have something to offer, to bring to the table. It's a love that doesn't require us to clean ourselves up or get ourselves back together. It's not a love that turns away from us when we aren't good enough. God's love makes enemies into friends. God's love makes outsiders into insiders. Ruth is saying, I'm a foreigner, but she's being treated as an insider by Boaz, not as an outsider. God's love pulls sinners close. God's love is an even though love, even though we're weak, even though we're needy, even though we're sinful, his face still shines upon us. And God's love is for those who are in desperate need of his love. It's not something we work ourselves to be good enough for. Just two thoughts as we close. One of the amazing things is that God can use you in other people's lives, just like he used Boaz. He used Ruth in Naomi's life. He used Boaz and Ruth in Naomi's lives. And you could be the way that someone sees God as present and active in their life, the way that sees God loving them. If you think about this story, it's like they might have been, the word we would maybe use today is like, this is just a crazy story. It's like a miracle. I don't know how we survived this famine. Like I happened to get to the right field at the right time. The guy gave me permission. Was, and then he ends up being related to my father-in-law. And so now it's like, well, this is a crazy story. It's a miracle. Boaz was if you want to say it, the miracle in their life. And I don't, I don't think it's too far to say that you could be the miracle in someone else's life. Of course, it's not your power doing it, 
but it's God can use you to show his love to someone. They might be, everybody you walk into might have woke up this morning and just said, God, I don't know if you're real, but if you are, show me. And then you come up to them and say, it seems like you're having a hard day. Can I pray for you quick? And it's like, oh my gosh, I you know, that's just kind of how that works. And the second thing to close is we're called to be a community of love where we receive God's love from him and we also receive it from and through each other because we're the body of Christ. Christ is our head, who's our authority and the source of life for us. And we're the body of Christ through which he does his work in the church and in the world by his spirit present with us. And so we are loved by God, like we talked about in our last series, that we were made to be loved by God, to then love God, and then to love like God. So God's love can come to you, but can also come out through you to other people as you give it what you've been given away to others. Let's pray. God, there's so many times in our lives when we can tend to just not be thinking about you or not thinking you're around, not thinking you're with us. And Lord, we just see here that your love uh, is much greater than our feelings of it or our uh, sense of it, our awareness of it. And so Lord, would you help us to be attentive and receptive to the ways that you are active and present in our lives, the ways that you are lovingly caring for us and lovingly guiding us. Sons, then we pray. Amen.